you know what these are? Quote, Sadie walked under the gates one by one. At first she felt nothing, but as she kept moving ahead, she began to feel an opening and a new spaciousness in her chest. She realized what a gate was. It was an indication that you had left one space and were entering another. She walked through another gate. It occurred to Sadie, she thought after Ishigu, that she would never fail again. Then she thought she had arrived, but life was always arriving. There was always another gate to pass through, until of course there wasn't. She walked through another gate. What was a gate anyway? A doorway, she thought, a portal, the possibility of a different world, the possibility that you might walk through the door and reinvent yourself as something better than you had been before. It's a Japanese Tori gate pathway. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of September's book Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin published in 2022. So each month I take a book split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware, there may be spoilers. Now, I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow from chapter five pivots on page 211. Now there are some adult themes throughout the second half, themes of suicide, violence, sexism and misogyny. I don't use any foul language in this podcast but please check the content of the novel before proceeding. So Marx has taken on two new games developers and they struggle with the name of their next game which is going to be counterpart high. Sadie is still hurting from the failure of the game called Both Sides and calls up her ex-boyfriend Dov. She asks him how to cope with public failure and he says, quote, you try again, you fail better. Now Sadie's sister Alice is a doctor and getting married to another doctor. She says she played both sides and enjoyed the references to her childhood illness. Sadie reflects that it was all Sam's work, the Mapletown part of the game, and that part of the game is generating quite a fan base. Now, ultimately, Marx and Zoe split up. Zoe goes to Italy to study opera, having received the fellowship. And Sadie and Marx go to Tokyo for some business games meetings and for Marx to visit his father and mother, who are Japanese. Now, Sadie questions her instincts with Marx after the, quote, failure of both sides. And then, quote, Marx reached across the table and he took her hand in his. Sadie, I promise you, your instincts are good. How nauseating. Now, Marx's father gives Sadie a gift of a painting, Cherry Blossoms at Night by Katsushika Oe. Quote, the painting depicts a woman composing a poem on a slate in the foreground. The titular cherry blossoms are in the background, all but a few of them in deep shadow. Despite the title, the cherry blossoms are not the subject. It is a painting about the creative process, its solitude and the way in which an artist, particularly a female one, is expected to disappear. The woman's slate appears to be blank. They visit Marx's mother. His parents are not divorced, but they are living separately. Sadie and Marx have an idea about how to monetize both sides by giving the Maybertown section away for free. Quote, 
and monetize its maintenance through additional purchases, upgrades for the characters, the furnishings, the residences, the expansions. Now they meet up with some of Marx's school friends, one of which had a huge crush on Marx. One of them warns Sadie, quote, never sleep with Marx. One day he'll look at you with those eyes and you'll think he's harmless. And guess what happens that night? Yup, Sadie asks Marx if he'll sleep with her and they do. When they get back to the US, Marx and Sadie begin seeing each other. Now Sam sees Marx and Sadie together and knows Sadie is in love. Quote, if he hadn't been the person he was, terrified and cowardly and petty and insecure and sexually panicked and broken, Sadie might have been his because he loves Sadie. Poor Sam. We've got a question there. I wonder if Sam will persuade Sadie to drop Marx and go with him. I don't really care that much. I doubt it's going to happen though. He thinks, quote, there will never be another Sadie and this one is lost to him. He had had years to figure out the solution, but he'd wasted his time making games with her instead. He had had years to contemplate the puzzle of himself and now the old puzzle would be replaced with a new puzzle. How do I go on when the person I love most in the world is in love with someone else? Someone tell me solution, he thought, so I don't have to play this losing game all the way through. Now Sam finds a stray dog and takes it on when he can't find the owner. He takes his dog, Tuesday, for a walk in the park and is yelled at by a lady who thinks it's a coyote about to attack other dogs. She says, quote, if you don't know what something is, it's better to be safe. Now, when he recounts the tale to Sadie, she thinks he's upset because he feels it's referring to him. Quote, you're the incredibly special dog that no one can classify. And later, Sam follows a road in North Hollywood that he believes may lead to a secret network of roads in L.A. that his mother used to talk about. Now, the online game in Mabletown is very, very successful. Sam gives a TED talk stating, quote, What I believe to be my very core is that virtual worlds can be better than the actual world. They can be more moral, more just, more progressive, more empathetic and more accommodating of difference. And if they can be, shouldn't they be? Certainly, his very real physical world has been such a tough one for poor Sam. Now, Dov is marrying a former student a few years below Sadie, what a surprise. And Sam, Sadie and Marks are invited to the wedding, so they all head out on a nine-hour road trip. Sam finds out that Marks and Dov are in quite a serious relationship, and he whinges to Sam that Marks is, quote, boring. Like that's going to persuade her against him. I do feel like we're two-thirds of the way through the book at this point, and the relationship between Marks and Sadie is Sam's lowest point in the novel, so there will hopefully be a happy epiphany for Sadie at the end of the novel when she chooses Sam instead. Let's hope and see. Now Sadie wants to make a new theatre-based game set in the 16th century called Master of the Revels, and Sam is against the idea. Marx is happy to let her do it on her own. Quote, that night in bed at Sadie's apartment, Marx asked Sadie if she was certain she wanted to make Master of the Revels sans Sam. Now I'm thinking, who is this narrator who would say a thing like sans Sam? I guess it's Marx being the close third person narrator. He is a bit of a strange one. Ran over. Now, Ant and Simon decide to get married, but a few months later, their marriage is cancelled by the California Supreme Court. Sam makes marriage open to any gender or race in Mapletown, a political gesture which has its detractors and its proponents. 
Sam plays Sadie's game and he really likes it. This pleases Sadie who is trying to make her mark on her own without Sam. Now Sadie is sick and does a pregnancy test which shows she is likely pregnant. Mark seems to have some kind of accident and he's in hospital recounting memories including memories of Charlotte and Adam Worth, inventors of a game called Our Infinite Days. Everything is narrated as Mark's in the second person. Quote, Memory, you realise long ago, is a game that a healthy-brained person can play all the time. And the game of memory is won or lost on one criterion. Do you leave the formation of memories to happenstance or do you decide to remember? So where were you when this began? Good advice. The second person narration really emphasises this feeling of him being out of place as a character of viewing himself from a distance as someone looking in. It's a very clever effect. In his second person interior monologue, recording his memories, he hears a bang from downstairs and some loon who yells, quote, faggot lover, obviously incensed by Sam Mazer, allowing marriages of all people in Maple World. Now this loon wants to see Sam and he has a gun. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. The receptionist says Sam's not around and that the CEO is, i.e. Marks. I'm thinking, no, just say no one's there. So Marx is having all these recollections of the situation. He's obviously been shot and is dying. Quote, there is an ungenerous part of you that wishes you had left Gordon in the reception area and gone up to the roof with everyone else. Now, Gordon is the receptionist. Marx ultimately learns that Sadie is pregnant with his baby and then he dies. As he's going through the dying process, he does reflect that in most games, the title Game Over is just a construction. Quote, there is always one more life. His co-workers make him a desk nameplate that reads, quote, Marx Watanabe, Tamer of Horses. Now, at the beginning of the book, Marx and Sadie have a conversation about Marx's second name. Mark says, quote, what's everyone talking about? And Sadie says, the end of the Iliad. Mark says, that's the best part. Sadie says, why is it the best part? And Mark says, because it's perfect. Tamer of horses is an honest profession. The lines mean that one doesn't have to be a god or a king for your life to have meaning. Tamer of horses really is like his second name. It reminds me very much of the T.S. Eliot poem, The Naming of Cats which I think is a reference to Revelation chapter 2, verse 17 from the Bible. It is Marx's true name, the one that truly expresses his character. Now, he remembers eating a peach from an orchard as he slips away to death. It's a very sad and moving scene. Just as Marx thinks about the game over, meaning that death is not the end, Sam reflects on, quote, the first time Sam saw Marx die when he was playing the character Banquo in a Shakespeare play. But now his death is very real and a truly heartbreaking part of this novel. The cynic in me, of course, is thinking what a reckless and uncaring implied author prepared to kill off Mark so that Sadie and Sam have an opportunity to be together. Although I imagine I'll be proved wrong. Let's see. Now, Sam goes back to the office after some time. There's a shrine and bloodstains at the scene where the crime took place. I assumed they would do a thorough clean-up as part of the service, but perhaps not. Now, Sadie is obviously depressed by Marx's death and doesn't show up to work. Sam, insensitively, in my opinion, tells her to, quote, 
Snap out of it, Sadie. Comes the office. We work through our pain. That's what we do. We put the pain into the work and the work becomes better. She has her baby called Naomi and Sadie and Sam don't chat for a very long time. Now, at a party thrown to celebrate the release of Counterpart High senior year, Sam rediscovers the artwork from Our Infinite Days and is inspired to get in touch with the husband and wife team that came to speak to Marks. There's a recollection of an event which shows how the book gets its title Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's because originally Marks wanted to use the name Tomorrow Games from a Shakespeare quote from Macbeth. Quote, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What is a game? Mark says. It's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's the possibility of infinite rebirth, infinite redemption. The idea that if you keep playing, you could win. No loss is permanent because nothing is permanent ever. Now, Sam and Sadie rejected the idea. Back to the present day and Sam's working on a Wild West game called Pioneers. Sadie hasn't returned to unfair games. She's in mourning and Sam creates this game so that he can contact Sadie through its online features. There's a wonderful description of how the game starts. A pregnant Emily gets off a train and has nothing. She starts a farm and then sells that to create a bookshop. And when she is interviewed by the local paper, she says, quote, I believe that virtual worlds can help people solve problems in the real one. What is virtual, says the editor? Nearly appearing so, like yourself. Now, it's as if she knows she is a character in a computer game. It's very meta, and this Emily character is charming and funny. Talking of meta, the characters seem to know they're in a game. When Emily becomes unwell, Alabaster, her neighbour, says, quote, I can plainly see that you're letting your hearts get low referencing the hearts icons that often appear next to characters in computer games. This book is growing on me. I do like the descriptions of the computer games and how their stories often reflect on real world events. The game within a book has a definite resonance with Hamlet and the play within the play. Perhaps through playing the game, Sadie will realise her love for Sam and there will be wedding bells at the end of the novel. What a romantic I am. I don't think it's going to happen. Now this game, Pioneers, ultimately brings Sam and Sadie back together in the online world of the game. But when Sadie realises she's been tricked by Sam, she leaves the game. She meets Dove and he invites her to run a seminar on game design. Now Dong Hyun, Sam's grandfather, dies and he leaves his Donkey Kong arcade machine to Sadie. This leaving of the Donkey Kong machine ultimately leads to a reparation of relations between Sam and Sadie and the novel ends with the hope that they may eventually work together on another game. Now, initial thoughts, well, it was inevitable that they wouldn't end up an item, but we definitely all wanted it, well, at least I wanted it. And right at the end of the novel, it seems really hopeful that they might get it together. Quote, Sam offered Sadie his hand and she shook it. She pulled him into her and she kissed Sam on the cheek. I love you, Sadie, Sam said. I know, Sam, I love you too. Sadie returned the line. And I'm thinking, no, Sadie, don't return line. You love Sam. He loves you. Go back with him to a life with Sam. But I guess that ending would just be too corny. And this author is 
very hip and cool. And it does say at the start, this is not a romance, but it is about love. I wanted a crocodile done the or pretty woman ending, but guys, this is the 2020s, not the 1980s. Love is not so simple. It was interesting, the idea of success in the novel, just as we had in that first half, success is really important. Quote, well, says Sadie, I learned to program computers in middle school. I got an 800 on my math set, won a Westinghouse and a Leipzig, and then I went to MIT, which, by the way, is highly competitive, even for a lowly female like myself, and studied computer science. At MIT, I learned four or five more programming languages and studied psychology with an emphasis on ludic techniques and persuasive designs and English, including narrative structures, the classics and the history of interactive storytelling. Got myself a great mentor, regrettably made him my boyfriend. Suffice it to say, I was young and then I dropped out of school for a time to make a game because my best frenemy wanted me to. That game became the game you never heard of, but yet it sold around two and a half million copies just in the US. We have that Mayor Mazer, the avatar in Mapletown, who is by 2009, quote, on an ad week list of the most recognisable branded characters of the new millennium. And then the defining pinnacle of success, a TED talk, quote, on or about the 10th anniversary of Maple World's launch, Sam gave a TED talk titled The Possibility of Utopia in Virtual Worlds. Success really is everything. Why not? Good ideas come from an honest relationship with one's mind. The idea for Master of the Revels, according to Sam, comes from an idea to impress. Quote, Sadie wants to make something dark and intellectual so that people will take her seriously. She's trying to impress people like Dov. She's trying to win back the people that wrote bad reviews of both sides. The best colours of Sadie are not her darkness. She even says later to Marx, quote, I want to do something on my own, something that is fully mine, something that no one can attribute, for better or for worse, to Sam. We have that idea that fortune favours those who see fortune in everything. According to Sadie, quote, Sam used to say that Marx was the most fortunate person he had ever met. He was lucky with lovers, in business, in looks, in life. But the longer Sadie knew Marx, the more she thought Sam hadn't truly understood the nature of Marx's good fortune. Marx was fortunate because he saw everything as if it were a fortuitous bounty. I mentioned the close third person. Sam constantly thinks in numbers. He's a maths lover. And the narrator does say, quote, 503 days after Marx had been shot, Charlotte and Adam Worth began work on Our Infinite Days. To prepare for their arrival, Sam had packed up Sadie's office the night before and moved her personal items into his own office. Now, we know as the reader that this third person narrator is effectively Sam or is at least speaking with the kind of voice Sam would have if he was narrating in the third person. This happens throughout the book and it is an interesting effect, but it does make me wonder whether I can trust these omniscient narrators. Quite often, a third person omniscient narrator is relatively impartial, but perhaps not in this book. How did you find it? Listen to the narrator's voice in Emily's 1850s Western town. The narrator seems to take on the voice of someone in the 1850s with words like averred and indeed. Quote, in the morning, Emily called on Dr. Edna Daedalus, whose office was, indeed, three doors down from Friendship Books, etc. Dr. Daedalus was occupied with another patient, so Emily passed the time browsing. In addition to eyeglasses, the office carried a variety of glass objects in vivid colours, sculptural whimsies and more practical glassware as well. Emily picked up a miniature crystal horse to examine it more closely. Nay, 
Emily started at the braying sound. She discovered the noise derived from the doctor. She likes you, Dr. Daedalus said. Madame, this simulacrum bears an uncanny resemblance to my horse, Pixel, Emily said. She is the precise shade of azure. It is your horse, though she never told me her name. She is always waiting outside your shop. Your horse and I, we're quite good friends. Just as you become your character in a computer game, I feel like the narrator is constantly becoming the characters in the book. Did you get that impression? Now there's more very, very hard working going on in this book. Sadie's had a baby and Dov says, quote, what are you working on anyway? And Sadie says, nothing much. Taking my kid to nursery school, trying to stay sane. And then Dov says, quote, don't like the sound of that. You should be working. And Sadie agrees with him. Yeah, I'll work eventually. I mean, give her a break. She's just had a baby. Is a baby not work? Throughout the novel, trauma is obviously a very important idea. Sadie and Sam reflect on how, quote, young people are different to them. Sadie says, quote, they honest to God think their traumas are the most interesting thing about them. I sound like I'm making fun, and I am a little, but I don't mean to. They're so different from us, really. Their standards are higher. They call BS on so much of the sexism and racism that I, at least, just lived with. But that's also made them kind of, well, humorless. I hate people who talk about generational differences like it's an actual thing. And here I am doing it. It doesn't make sense. How alike were you to anyone we grew up with, you know? And Sam asks, if their traumas are the most interesting things about them, how do they get over any of it? And Sadie says, I don't think they do. Or maybe they don't have to. I don't know. I think it's a very interesting idea. The idea that you can hold on to a trauma because it defines you. It satisfies the ego. Now, overall thoughts. I thought it was a touching portrait of a close working relationship between two high school friends. I was hoping it would end in a stronger relationship between the two main characters, but that was never really on the cards. When Sam says, quote, why do you think we never got together? Sadie responds with, quote, we were together. You must know that. When I'm honest with myself, the most important parts of me were yours. But together, together, the way you were with Marks or Dov, says Sam. Sadie replies with, how can you not know this? Lovers are common, she studied Sam's face. Because I love working with you better than I like the idea of making love to you. Because true collaborators in this life are rare. Poor Sam is desperately wanting a relationship with Sadie, but he never gets one. Instead, we have to put up with this horrible relationship with that awful Dov and a slightly less horrible relationship with charming Marks, Sam's high school friend. How horrible for Sam. Part of me thinks this implied author wants Sam to be downtrodden and loveless. What a horrible implied author. So I'm not sure that I particularly like this implied author. Although, very, very cleverly written book. If I had to do one of those Netflix star ratings, loved it, liked it or not for me, I'd probably put it in the last category. That's not to say it's not a really well-written novel and very clever. I mean, who couldn't fall in love with those awesome close third person omniscient narrators and all those clever references to Homer and Shakespeare and all the erudite language. Now I know what echt and jejun, grok and a host of other clever words mean. But success seemed to be such an important idea in the novel and I found it difficult that emotional and romantic success seemed to elude all the characters. Maybe that's the point, that in our fractured society, success is easily quantifiable in categories such as career or wealth or work or how many hours you are at the office or how much esteem you get from your peers. But emotional success is such a fickle and difficult beast to tame.
I'm probably just rambling now. What did you think? What did the novel say to you? Obviously, all the computer game references were very interesting and novel. I've never really read a book where computer gaming was the key hook. And the stories and games ideas that Gabrielle Zevin has come up with are so original and interesting. I bet there's going to be a few computer game spin-offs based on the back of this book. Thank you very much, Gabrielle Zevin. I'd love to know your thoughts, so please write and let me know what you thought of the novel. I'd like to now talk a little bit about October's book, The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, published in 1928. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to part two, The Mending Apparatus. Now, when I saw it online, I thought, oh, that looks like an ordinary sized novel, but it appeared very small. It's a very small novel. I didn't think it'd be quite so small, but why not? Let's read a small novel. I bet it can be just as rich as a full-length novel. My mum's reading it at the moment. I thought she was talking about the time machine when she mentioned it. It seemed very reminiscent. She talked about, oh, people who lived underground or something. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's the time machine. She's like, no, it's not the time machine. It's by E.M. Forster. Now, as you might know, I read Howard's End last year. It was one of the Bookshook episodes. And I was shocked at the thought of this writer, one that I associate with writing about quite posh people in England in the 1920s and the class system, I didn't think he would be writing about sci-fi and I thought I'd have to give it a go. I must admit, I didn't realise it was quite so short. It's only a few pages long, really. But sometimes, as I say, the finest things come in the shortest length. So I'm going to read you the first few pages of The Machine Stops. Part one, the airship. Imagine, if you can, a small room, hexagonal in shape like the cell of a bee. It is lighted neither by window nor by lamp, yet it is filled with a soft radiance. There are no apertures for ventilation, yet the air is fresh. There are no musical instruments, and yet, at the moment that my meditation opens, this room is throbbing with melodious sounds. An armchair is in the centre, by its side a reading desk. That is all the furniture, and in the armchair there sits a swaddled lump of flesh. A woman, about five feet high, with a face as white as fungus. It is to her that the little room belongs. An electric bell rang. The woman touched a switch, and the music was silent. I suppose I must see who it is, she thought, and set her chair in motion. The chair, like the music, was worked by machinery, and it rolled her to the other side of the room, where the bell still rang importunately. Who is it? she called. Her voice was irritable, for she had been interrupted often since the music began. She knew several thousand people. In certain directions, human intercourse had advanced enormously. But when she listened into the receiver, her white face wrinkled into smiles, and she said, Very well, let us talk. I will isolate myself. I do not expect anything important will happen for the next five minutes, for I can give you fully five minutes, Kuno. Then I must deliver my lecture on music during the Australian period. She touched the isolation knob so that no one else could speak to her. Then she touched the lighting apparatus, and the little room was plunged into darkness. Be quick, she called, irritation returning. Be quick, Kuno. Here I am, in the dark, wasting my time. But it was fully 15 seconds before the round plate that she held in her hands began to glow. A faint blue light shot across it, darkening to purple, and presently she could see the image of a son who lived on the other side of the earth, and he could see her. Kuno, how slow you are, he smiled gravely. I really believe you enjoy dawdling. I have called you before, mother, but you were always busy or isolated. I have something particular to say. And what is it, dearest boy? Be quick. Why could you not send it by pneumatic post? Because I prefer saying such a thing. I want... Well? 
I want you to come and see me. Vashti watched his face in the blue plate. But I can see you, she exclaimed. What more do you want? I want to see you, not through the machine, said Kuno. I want to speak to you, not through the wearisome machine. Oh, hush, said his mother, vaguely shocked. You mustn't say anything against the machine. Why not? One mustn't. You talk as if a god had made the machine, cried the other. I believe that you pray to it when you are unhappy. Men made it. Do not forget that. Great men, but men. The machine is much, but it is not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. That is why I want you to come. Come and stop with me. Pay me a visit so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. And there I think I'll leave it. Very interesting opening. That reminds me of making a call on WhatsApp or Zoom using a um, screen to speak to someone across the world. A hundred years earlier, it was being written about by E.M. Forster in The Machine Stops. Very interested to read the rest of that. Do join me for the next bookshook. Thanks very much for listening. Now, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and let me know. Thank you. I look forward to discussing the first half of The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of October. That's the 13th. See you then. Mm -hmm.